John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses in John chapter 8. And let's read from verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And this they said to him, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So I've entitled the teaching tonight, Framed. Framed. Lots, lots of criminals use this phrase, framed, don't they? We see that in movies on TV. We hear that from those that are imprisoned. You know, what did you do to get in here? A lot of them say, well, I was, I was framed. For some, that may be true. But for a lot of them, we know that that's not the case. That they are in there because they were guilty. So Webster's defines frames as to contrive the evidence against an innocent person so that a verdict of guilty is assured. So contriving the evidence against an innocent person so that a verdict of guilty is assured. Well, what if, or what do you call it when you frame a guilty person so the verdict of guilty is assured? What do you call that? What if the crime committed and the guilty person is not the, really the person that's on trial at all, but the judge himself to see if he will administer the correct verdict? Well, we would think that's ridiculous, wouldn't we? That you go into a trial, someone's on trial, but it's not the person that's on trial that's really on trial at all. It's actually the judge that's on trial to see if the judge is actually going to administer the right verdict. Now we would. We would think, well, that's just ridiculous. So we have a person that's committed a crime, and there are enough witnesses to collaborate the guilt of that crime. There's enough evidence that it's gone, you know, it's gone to trial. So the person is brought to trial, but the accusers really don't care so much about the guilt of the perpetrator as much as whether or not the judge in the case will administer, administer the right verdict. So the judge himself is the one who is on trial, more than the one who committed the crime. It sounds ridiculous. Verse 1, we saw tonight, but Jesus 
went to the Mount of Olives. So tonight as we go through this text, we know the story of this woman that was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus. But we're going to see that these accusers, these religious leaders, are really bringing her as a pawn, if you will, to see what the response of Jesus is going to be in this situa situation. So verse 1 says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. We saw at the end of John 7, the last verse in John chapter 7, that everyone else left and went to their homes. Everyone that was at that scene, finishing up in that chapter, left and went to their homes. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents, was over. So everyone went to their own homes. Jesus didn't have that luxury. We see in Luke chapter 9, verse 58, that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Yeah, there were probably many places he could have gone and stayed with friends or even family, but by his own choice, we see what he chose to do. He went to the Mount of Olives. Why? What was at the Mount of Olives? Well, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, have you ever seen pictures of the city of Jerusalem? The Mount of Olives is also where the Garden of Gethsemane is. Uh, when we were over there in 2007, we took a tour through there. We were at uh, the Mount of Olives, we were at the Garden of Gethsemane, and there were olive trees there that you know how, with trees it's different than a lot of scientific or unscientific testing where they do the carbon dating. You know, with trees it's pretty easy because you can count the rings and get a, uh, you know, an idea of the age of a particular tree. And some of those trees, they uh, believe, were over 2,000 years old. So some of the very trees that we saw when we were there, these olive trees, could have been the very trees that were in the garden when Jesus was there. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. It's, and you look at these trees and you, they are old. I mean, they're very old. They just look old. All gnarly and everything. Uh, so they're old trees. But we see that Jesus spent a lot of time on the Mount of Olives and in the Garden of Gethsemane. Throughout the Gospel accounts, it was a regular place of refuge for Jesus. We see that time and time again. Luke chapter 22, verse 39 even tells us, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. He was accustomed to going there. Now why do you suppose that? He used the location regularly as a quiet place to go and meet with the Father. To go and to pray, to talk with the Father, and to hear from the Father. And that is great application for us. Set aside time, find a quiet place, talking to the Lord, hearing from the Lord. If it was a priority for Jesus, it, it should be for us as well, shouldn't it? It's important. We don't know, as we've talked before, we don't know what each day holds for us. Uh, but spending time with the Father in the morning uh, it better prepares us for whatever it is that the day holds. It gives us the opportunity to pray for divine appointments. It prepares us for those very divine appointments that we're praying for. It doesn't mean that the day goes according to our will. 
does it? <laughs> we know that to be true. But it does help us discover and follow God's will for whatever the day holds for us. Now on this day for Jesus, it would be especially important as we're going to see that Jesus is set up by these religious leaders. But where is he right now in our text? Verse 2, he's, he's teaching. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Jesus, we see it from his life, he was always ready to teach, wasn't he? He always wanted to be able to be with the people, to teach the people and pray with the people and pray for the people, to heal the people, to feed the people as we've seen. He was all about ministering to the people. He always had something to share. He loved being with the people. He loved teaching these people. But we see in verse 3 that now an event's going to happen that for most people would set them back on their heels because they're going to ask a question for which there seems to be no right answer. Verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Interesting question, isn't it? Interesting thing that they're putting before Jesus. It's obvious what they're doing, aren't they? They're testing him. So what did the law say exactly regarding this about someone in adultery? Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And it also says in Deuteronomy 22, 22, if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. Okay, what does the law say? Who is it that should be stoned by the law? Both the woman and the man. Well, where is the man? In this little story, this vignette, this challenge that they're bringing before Jesus, we have the woman caught in adultery, but where's the man? Because by law, he should have been there as well, correct? And how is it that she was caught in the very act? Deuteronomy 17.6 says, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the te testimony of one witness. So you want to talk about the law here. The law also said they could not sentence someone to death without the testimony of two or three witnesses. So think about this for a second. Caught in the very act of adultery, two or three witnesses, they had to be watching. They had to have seen the very act to be witnesses of it, correct? Now how perverted is that? This thing had to be a setup. But again, where's the man? Why was he not brought to Jesus as well if they witnessed 
this act themselves. The law says what the law says, and it says that both of them should be stoned. So who's really on trial here? Surely we see that the woman is guilty. She was caught in sin. And what she was doing was wrong according to the law. We see that. They're correct in saying that. But the methods in which they caught her were certainly questionable. It was kind of a first century sting operation, wasn't it? (laughs) In law enforcement, you may have heard that term, a sting operation. It's a deceptive operation designed to catch a person committing a crime. CSI. How many of you watch CSI? You're saying which one? I know, there's like 30 of them, right? I don't watch the show, I've seen it. It looks interesting. It's another police show, another investigative show. Looks like it might be uh, interesting, entertaining. But they do these sting operations. I have a brother who lives back in Illinois who worked for the uh, Western Illinois Drug Task Force for years. He was an undercover narcotics agent. And that's what they're all about, trying to catch someone, you know, dealing drugs, doing drugs. Of course, in Colorado, they just make it legal, (laughs) you know, go ahead and smoke it, right? But at that time, many, many times, he was involved in these sting operations where they're a setup. They're trying to actually catch someone uh, committing a crime. So a typical sting operation will have a law enforcement officer of some type and or a cooperative member of the public uh, to play a role as a criminal or, or a potential victim, if you will. So they're to go along with the suspect's actions to gather evidence of this suspect's wrongdoing. So this is a first century sting operation. In this case, the Pharisees represent law enforcement. And the man involved in adultery is this cooperative member of the public, isn't it? Because they probably said to him, okay, look, here's what's going to happen. We need you to be involved in this adulterous act. And this is to catch this woman in sin. They may not have explained to him the whole thing was to catch Jesus, uh, to test him. But they basically say to him, Nothing, no harm's going to come to you. Nothing's going to be done to you. Uh, you're going to get off scot-free. You won't get stoned. Even the law says that. We're just using you to achieve our means. Sting operation. But the woman, let's not forget, is the guilty party. But the man, because of his cooperation with the authorities, is evidently not guilty because he's cooperating with the authorities. You see this whole setup, this whole frame job. Verse 6 says, They said, testing him, testing Jesus, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So we see in this verse that this really doesn't have much to do with the woman, although maybe she's the, the object of attention initially. It really has more to do with Jesus and him being on trial and how he's going to react to this situation. They wanted to see how he was going to respond. The Pharisees believe that they have him in a a catch-22 moment. We've heard that phrase before, catch-22. 
It was based on a 1961 novel that was written. A catch-22 scenario is this paradoxical situation from which an individual cannot escape because of contradictory rules. So catch-22s often result from rules, regulations, or procedures that an individual is subject to but has no control over. So one connotation of the term is that the creators of the catch-22 have created these arbitrary rules in order to justify and conceal their own abuse of power. Well, that's what's going on. We see that. So I like to always look for the simple definition after going through Webster's and all these things. A simple definition would be the predicament of being trapped by contradictory rules. So a modern-day Catch-22 situation might go something like this. In order to get a good job, you need a good education, right? And in order to get a good education, you need money. And in order to get money, you need a job. <laughs> That's what a lot of college kids face, don't they? They want to get a good education, but to get a good education, they got to have a job. And to get a good job, they need to earn money so that they can pay for the education. It's just this vicious circle. It's a catch-22 scenario because it is like, and you've seen it before, even after you get out of school, you go in for an interview. Well, we're just looking for someone with more experience. Well, how do I get experience? <laughs> I need a job to get the experience, right? It happens to all of us. So in our text, Jesus would be caught in a set of conflicting scenarios as well. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law said she must be stoned. The law is very clear on that, right? And they say to Jesus, what do you say? So Jesus has a couple of choices here. He really has more than a couple, but they're thinking that he only has a couple. If he says, do not stone her, he's not following the law, is he? He had earlier said, I did not come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. So, in a sense, he's bound by the law. But if he says, go ahead, stoner, this could jeopardize his position as a friend of sinners, couldn't it? The prostitutes and tax collectors and common street people might no longer feel comfortable around him because they feel like he sold them out. He, he sold out one of their own. So he is, so the religious leaders thought, caught in this no-win scenario, trapped, no way out. What, what will he do? What will he say? Either way, this woman's world gets rocked, doesn't it? <laughs> Does Jesus have a response that would get himself out of this situation? Had he been prepared by the Father early that morning to deal with this trial, what's coming up this day? Verse 7 says, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What a brilliant answer. It's a God-inspired answer. The only right answer to the question. Remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about righteous judgment? Remember that we reference Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, For with what judgment you judge, 
you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus himself said that. <laughs> and he's actually using that right now in this situation. A recent example. Chris and I had the opportunity this past week to travel to Minneapolis to see our new grandson that was just born 12 days ago, something like that. Beautiful kid, looks a lot like his grandfather. And so, <laughs> not really at all. <laughs> looks more like grandma and grandma's daughter, which happens to be my daughter as well, but aside from that. Anyway, we're coming back from Minneapolis after seeing our grandson, and we're traveling on I-80 across Nebraska. How many of you have traveled that road? Not a whole lot to see, you know. Few hills with long stretches of no hills. And so I noticed that there's just a number of cars that are just flying by us. And the speed limit's 70 mile an hour. So I'm thinking, and I'm sure I've even said, I hope they get pulled over. You know, just flying by. So I'm sure you're thinking right now, well, how fast were you going? I had the cruise set at 75, okay? <laughs> would Jesus' statement here have applied to me in that situation? Yes, it would. The question is not, have I sinned? But in this case, I was committing the same sin they were, wasn't I? Just slower. Speed limit was 70. I got the cruise set at 75, and they're flying by us at 80 mile an hour. And so I'm thinking... Well, I hope someone pulls them over. And I'm guilty of the same thing, aren't I? Guilty of the exact same thing. But I, they were breaking the law worse than I was, you know? That would be the logic that I would use. <laughs> you know, hey, they were going faster than me, so that's worse than me, so they're the ones that should get pulled over. You know, I, I can imagine trying to use that logic with the state patrolman well, you know, <laughs> there were several cars that passed me that were going much faster than I was. Yeah, maybe they were, but I stopped you. Yeah, yeah, you did. And I'm sure Chris was probably looking at the speedometer and checking on me from time to time, see how fast I was going. But you know how it goes, don't you? You get in the car, I don't want to get off on this, but I am now, so we're going to keep going. <laughs> You get in the car, you're traveling down the interstate at 70, you know you can get away with 74, 75. You think, ah, 76, that might be pushing it, right? They might just pull me over for 76. Uh, I used to know a state patrolman out in Fort Morgan that went to a Bible study that Chris and I led out there in Brush. And I asked him one night, he was still employed by the state patrol. So, Jim, just how fast can you go? and still get away with it. And he said, why would you even ask that? Do, do you really think that I'm going to answer that? Because what are you going to do? That's exactly what you're going to set the cruise with and just think, I'm good to go. He said, it just kind of depends. I said, it depends? You mean you just arbitrarily pull someone over for driving too fast? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I guess if you're breaking the law, you're breaking the law and they can do whatever they want, right? I, I don't understand it, but... So I was breaking the law. I was breaking the speed limit. 
But I saw myself, I'm just not as bad as they are. They should be caught and punished. Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, you who are without sin, any sin, go ahead and throw your rock. Go ahead and throw your rock of unrighteous judgment at that person. And it's real easy for us to look at these religious leaders with a condemning attitude, isn't it? We think, what a setup. Look at how they're judging her when some of them may be guilty of the same sin. Sadly, we do this all the time as well. We can find ourselves putting ourselves in the place of being the prosecuting attorney, the jury, and the judge <laughs> when we're looking at someone else. We put them on trial with no opportunity to hear their defense. So Jesus presents the case for the defense by saying, what you are accusing her of, you are guilty of the same or similar sin yourself. You are to be judged just as you are judging her. But there's something else in this text that has been debated by scholars for years. It's kind of fascinating. What was Jesus writing on the ground with his finger? The big question. Probably rates right up there with, did Adam have a belly button? <laughs> I don't know. Does it really matter? We'll see when we get to heaven. So some have suggested that the first time Jesus knelt down and wrote on the ground, maybe he was writing the names of those who wanted to stone her. Those around the group. Maybe Jesus wrote each one of their names down on the ground. The next time he knelt down and wrote on the ground, he was writing the sins they had committed after their names. It's possible. Again, we don't know for sure, but it's, it's kind of fun. It's kind of interesting to speculate, isn't it? We just don't know for sure, though. He, he could have written an Old Testament scripture reference that would have been convicting to them. Now, this scene is very similar to what was written in the Old Testament concerning David's sin with Bathsheba. Remember in 2 Samuel 12? 2 Samuel chapter 11 ends with the phrase, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So hold your place in John and turn back to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, ironically enough, it's right after 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 12. So David has, most of us know, committed this sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And then to, she gets pregnant, and to cover it up, what does he do? He sends Uriah, her husband, out into the battlefield tells the general, the captain, whatever, to place Uriah out at the front so that he would be wide open for attack, which he was, and Uriah the Hittite is killed. So, in a sense, David has committed murder as well by having him do this. So he's committed adultery, tried to hide it. He's committed murder, he's trying to hide it. 
And we see starting with verse 1 in chapter 12, 2 Samuel, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, bought and nourished and grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. So this lamb, this little lamb, was like a pet, a family pet to them. Verse 4, And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, the neighbor's pet, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and you gave the house of Israel and Judah, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commander of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. So Nathan says to David, you are the man. He had been in this adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Then he arranged things so that Uriah would be killed in battle. And it was this elaborate cover-up of his sin. So Jesus... He could have written on the ground, you are the man. They would have known what that meant. They know this story. They would have known what David had gone through. They had great respect for David, great admiration for David as king. They would brag about being in the lineage of the line of David themselves. But they would know this story. Jesus could have written, you are the man. We don't know. He could have also wrote on the ground the fulfillment of a verse that we find in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. As you look at that verse in Jeremiah, it says, O Lord... The hope of Israel. Who was the hope of Israel? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. All those who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. A finger in the ground, written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, Jesus Christ, the fountain of living waters. We know that phrase from the past few weeks as we've looked at that. Jesus being living water. So was what Jesus wrote on the ground written in the earth the fulfillment of Jeremiah 17, 13? We don't know. 
Here's what we do know. <laughs> they felt guilty enough that they left one by one. They dropped their rocks and left. Now, when we get to heaven, that is a question that we could ask Jesus. We could ask him, what did you write on the ground? He might tell us, he might not. I, I don't know. I don't know how Jesus would respond to that question. What he, what he did write, if he did share it with us, may shock us. Uh, we, just, we just don't have any idea. But here's what we do know. Whatever he wrote reaped heavy conviction on these guys. That and the statement of, you who without sin cast the first stone. That's why most scholars believe that he probably wrote something concerning their sin. You know, maybe even wrote the names of some of their girlfriends down. Could be. There's many things that he could have written. But whatever it was, they were convicted. Because verse 9 tells us, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So we see these keyhole-peeping, sin-sniffing, self-righteous Pharisees. They're all gone. And the text says, from the oldest even to the last. So why the oldest first, do you suppose? Well, normally the oldest tend to be the wisest. They would have a long lifetime of sin to ponder after this event. They were probably the quickest to realize that they had been bested by this Jesus. And also their elaborate scheme to trap Jesus in this catch-22, this frame job, this first century sting operation had failed miserably. And in the end, all that was left was Jesus and this woman. Verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now if we remember back in verse 3, it says that they brought her to Jesus and did what? Set her in the midst. So she was down on the ground, lower than everyone else there, leaders looking down on her. But where do we see Jesus during most of this scene? He had stooped down at her level to write on the ground. He wasn't looking down on her. So they brought this woman caught in her sin, caught in the very act of adultery, likely brought before Jesus naked or at least half naked. So there she sits on the ground in the dirt, caught in sin, condemned by the law, naked in her sin before Jesus. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? We're sinners. We're guilty of sin. Satan is our accuser. He tempts, he traps, he puts us in compromising situations. He runs his own sting operations. We get caught, we're guilty. Her way out, our way out, is only by what? It's only by Jesus, only through Jesus. 
a verse that we've quoted many times so far in our study of John. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He said to this woman, Go and sin no more. He says, In me, woman, you are free to sin no more. John 8.36 says, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. In Jesus, in Jesus Christ, if we have relationship with Him, we are free from the bondage of sin and death. Amen? It doesn't mean that we're sinless, but it should mean that we sin less. It should mean that we desire in our lives to be obedient to God's Word because of what Jesus Christ has done for each and every one of us. We see in this text tonight what He did for this woman. We don't know who this woman was. Uh, many people believe this was Mary Magdalene. There's nothing in Scripture that says that. Uh, there's nothing that gives us any indication who she was. It could have been Mary. It could have been another Mary. There were many Marys. But we don't know for sure who she was. But we do know this. She was impacted big time by her divine appointment with Jesus Christ. That the time that she spent on the ground, in the dirt, in front of her accusers, that time was redeemed by Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus would later die on the cross for her sins. He died on the cross for our sins. Gang, we can all look at this woman and realize we're really no different than her. We are in the dirt with our sin, weren't we? We are in that same place caught in sin in this catch-22 situation where Satan wanted to rip us off. He wanted to see us stoned. You're guilty. You've got no hope. And Jesus is there, not standing looking down on us in condemnation, but right there with us, beside us, loving on us and desiring for us to come to Him so that our sin could be forgiven. Amen.